Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. I'm Sorsha O'Callaghan, I'm the director of HPG, and I'm so pleased that so many of you are joining us for today's important discussion on climate and humanitarian action. We're hearing repeatedly how climate change is the defining issue of our times, and that the impacts of climate change are a systemic threat requiring action on multiple fronts. And here at ODI, we're working on this in various ways. Hot colleagues in my climate and sustainability team undertake work that ranges from promoting green resilient cities to climate financing. Our Global Risks and Resilience Programme is doing important work to explore how climate change is multiplying and compounding risks in resource poor environments, working from everything from national adaptation planning, financing for anticipatory action, and work on the climate conflict stability nexus. And here at HPG, we're focusing in particular on the climate implications for forced displacement. So it's a wide ranging and significant agenda. And who better to have today to discuss these major strategic questions than Mark Lowcock, the Emergency Relief Coordinator and Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs. Welcome, Mark. You're in the final months of your position, and so we're particularly keen to hear your reflections today. I'm also delighted to welcome Fonte Akum, who just since January has been at the helm of the Institute of Security Studies and based in Pretoria. I know that one of your objectives, Fonte, is to support greater adaptability across the African context to external impacts, including climate change. And so we're really delighted that you're joining us today and to hear your responses to, to Mark's comments. So a quick few housekeeping before we kick off. Many of you today have important expertise and interesting perspectives on this agenda. So please do share them as we're speaking um, in the chat. But if you have a question that you'd like to put to the panel, please do it in the Q&A box um, and I'll be putting them to, to Mark and to Fonte later. Join us on Twitter. The hashtag and the, the Twitter handles are appearing in the chat now. And we have closed captions today, so they're available um, during this event by clicking the bottom of the screen. And just a reminder that the event is being recorded and that the video will be available on the event web page in a couple of days time. So you can listen back um, or on the to the event or through the podcast podcast. So over to you, Mark, and a big welcome. Delighted to hear your comments. Thank you very much indeed, Sorcha. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. The Secretary General of the UN, my boss, Antonio Guterres, has rightly said this is our make or break year on climate change. And we're going to need to see really unprecedented political commitment this year um, at the COP. But what I'm talking about today is not the broad issues that will need to be progressed there, but the narrower ones that are a particular concern to people involved in humanitarian affairs. Because climate change is already one of the top drivers of humanitarian need, together with um, conflict and disease. And so what we are dealing with is not a theoretical problem about the future, but a real problem of today. Adverse weather events are becoming, as you all know, more extreme and more frequent. 2019, in fact, saw a six-fold increase in the number of 
climate and weather related natural disasters compared to the 1970s. And people who live in places particularly um, vulnerable to climate change, um, which are also very fragile, don't have the ability that there is in other places to cope with climate shocks. So their vulnerability is exceptionally high. Um, as lots of you will know, my office coordinates humanitarian responses around the world. And this year we have um, humanitarian response plans, major response, in other words, in 34 um, countries. Many of those countries are at the top of the list of vulnerability to um, climate change. In fact, 12 of the top 20 countries most vulnerable to climate change had a humanitarian response plan. Um, when you put together the um, resources involved in those plans, something like um, the climate vulnerable countries account for something like a third of the total funding required for humanitarian appeals last year. That's something like $13 billion. Um, and of the 12 most vulnerable countries, 11, have had an appeal for the last five years. So they have not just an acute problem, but an ongoing and chronic uh, problem. Now, when you travel round to places in crisis and you talk to people, you very frequently hear that people themselves know and see their climate is changing. I mean, I, I've had people describe exactly that to me in um, Malawi and other places in Southern Africa, in the Lake Chad region, which Fonte is a, a specialist in, in Somalia. And um, when I was in Fiji um, last year, people said exactly the same thing. So people can see the climate is changing. We also, though, know a lot more now than we did a few years ago about the link between conflict and climate change. 60% of the 20 countries most vulnerable to climate change are also affected by armed conflict. And the causes and effects are reinforcing that climate change makes conflict more likely. Conflict makes it harder to respond effectively to climate change and build resilience. So there's a very common and depressing reinforcing feedback loop. Um, those things also, of course, contribute to the symptoms of humanitarian problems. So acute hunger problems, mass migration, displacement, which Sorcha works a lot on, as well as social unrest and social discontent. And people who've looked at the causes of some of the big humanitarian problems we're dealing with in the world at the moment, whether it's Syria or problems in the Sahel or wherever it is, often come back to climate change as one of the underlying causes. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time dealing with how all of these causes re relate to each other and react with each other. We'll release a longer document, which people can study if they want to, which talks about those in more detail. What I'd really like to do um, is spend the next few minutes essentially running through what we can do a bit better in dealing with these problems. Well, before I do that, I just want to make one other point um, that is relevant context, which is that in general, humanitarian problems have been growing over the last decade or so. Um, they've actually been growing over a longer period, but especially over the last decade. And that's uh, 
reflected in the fact that, for example, people doing my job in 1995 were responding to something like 12 major crises rather than 34 we've got now. The average duration of crises is much longer than it used to be. And the funding cost to deal with them has really mushroomed. In the UN's interagency appeals in 1995, uh, were $2 billion, and this year they're, they're $40 billion, so a 20-fold increase. Funding has increased um, dramatically as well, so appeals last year were, were funded to the tune of $20 billion, but the gap between the needs and what's raised, which is in recent years about 40% gap, that gap is the highest that it's ever been. Humanitarian aid obviously can only be a temporary band-aid at the moment is far too small a band-aid so what we need is leaders around the world to take smarter decisions to deal with the underlying causes of these um, problems including in the way they respond to um, climate change so let me run through a bunch of things that i think um, should be done and and also could be done i mean the first thing we do need to restate is um and the copy, this is what the copy is all about, is that there needs to be much more serious action to slow the rate of climate change. And that will be a big focus um, at the COP. I do think that the new stance set out by the Biden administration provides some grounds for hope there. But even with that concerted action, as I said, climate change is already here and already having an effect in the most vulnerable countries. So we need to start to do a better job in adapting to and mitigating its consequences in those um, places. So here's a few things we can do. Firstly, adaptation finance needs to be scaled up now much more um, dramatically to help prevent, prepare for, and respond to climate-related crises and to make communities more resilient. The scale of ambition currently on adaptation financing is woefully inadequate, particularly in the most vulnerable places. Only 5% of all climate funding, I think, goes to adaptation. And of that, the 20 countries most vulnerable to climate change receive less than 15% of adaptation finance. Um, many of those countries also have severe levels of debt stress. And so some of the available resources in loan form, even very concessional, loans are essentially not available to some of those countries. So a couple of things need to happen to deal with this. Firstly, adaptation financing needs to be concentrated at a far higher rate in the most vulnerable countries. Um, and secondly, adaptation funding needs to be made more conflict sensitive so that it doesn't inadvertently exacerbate the drivers of fragility and inequality. The World Bank's estimated that it would take something like 30 to 100 billion dollars a year to meet the adaptation requirements set out by about 50 developing countries for the coming decade. Um, on the one hand, that sounds like a lot of money. On the other hand, the global response to the economic impact of COVID-19 has already surpassed $10 trillion. So 100 billion compared to that is, is not out of reach, but it does obviously require different decisions from some decisions that we're seeing now, particularly when it comes to the better off countries. It's also worth saying, of course, that investing in adaptation measures 
things like disaster risk reduction resilience has a, it has a very high return on investment. Every dollar invested in risk reduction and, protect, and prevention can save something like $15 in post-disaster recovery. The second um, area I wanna mention in terms of response is further improvements at um, responding to climate related disasters. It's interesting to observe that although there's been a big increase, as I said earlier, in the frequency and intensity of adverse weather events, the number of people killed by sudden onset disasters globally has actually decreased a lot year on year over recent decades. And the reason for that is because preparedness is better and early warning is better and resilience building strategies are better. Now there's a lot of scope to, to um, build further on that, particularly in the most vulnerable countries through things like more investment, both physical and social, by the way, um, not just infrastructure, but social readiness as well in preparedness activities. Um, related to that, the third, the third thing we need to uh, get much better at is, um, is, is because we, we now can predict climate related crises in advance, thanks to improvements in science and technology, you know, we get several days notice of um, storms and floods, we get weeks or months notice of droughts, because we can predict those things, we have an opportunity to take anticipatory action and act on the base, basis of forecasts of problems that are about to hit. That's a different concept, to be clear, from prevention or preparedness. This concept of anticipatory action is about acting faster when we know disaster is about to strike. Um, and, you know, evidence gathered of experiments trying to do that in places like Bangladesh and Ethiopia and Mongolia, lots of other places, has shown that compared to a reactive response, which is how the humanitarian system historically has worked, an anticipatory approach to disasters can still yield something like a seven to one return on investment over a year. So in other words, you get not just a much more humane response, but a much cheaper response as well. If donors um, more often channeled their funding to anticipatory approaches, that they, the impact would be very significant. The um, UN's um, Central Emergency Response Fund, which I manage, has now demonstrated a real comparative advantage in this anticipatory action approach, I think, but the scale is still much too small to optimize the benefits. The fourth thing I think we need to do is to help the most vulnerable countries scale up their access to contingency finance, um, including insurance, all the way from sovereign levels to household levels, so that response and recovery can be financed both much faster and at a larger scale than typically happens now. What we need to see is more pre-agreed contingency finance, especially from the multilateral system, which gives countries access to grants or loans at concessional rates as soon as the problem is crystallized. So things like um, catastrophe drawdown options, uh, they actually provided more than a billion dollars at the start of the COVID crisis, and they were among the fastest dispersed funds. Things, things like that, which are pre-agreed, instantly released, 
and deployed to deliver pre-work response plans, that's one of the most promising areas for large-scale scale-up um, in the wake of uh, in the wake of crises. I think there's also a role for greater use of insurance, although I I'm a bit less sure than I was three or four years ago about how big the role of insurance in this space is going to be. One of the issues that um, I think we're starting to see is that with more adverse events, the insurance companies themselves are starting to ask questions about whether premiums need to increase. And so the value for money in the insurance space is gonna, is gonna start to come under a bit more um, scrutiny, I think. Um, I do think there are some particularly promising initiatives in this space. Africa risk capacity is one that I, I think does have a lot of potential. They basically focus on early release of resources when there are um, threats to harvests because of adverse rainfall, um, particularly well, obviously in African countries because it's the African risk capacity. I think there's a lot of promise there and I think it'd be good if donors provide more resources to them. and if countries themselves invest more in taking out policies with ARC. The, the next point I want to make is um, about the implications of overlapping vulnerabilities. Countries which are very poor or poorly governed or fragile or vulnerable or um, conflict affected tend to be the ones which are most vulnerable as I've been talking about already um, to the impact of climate change. Now, the fact that there are overlapping vulnerabilities needs to be translated much more in a much more magnified way into the um, operations and the policies and programs, in particular, the international financial institutions. Masood Ahmed, who's the president of the Center for Global Development, and I wrote a piece in the Financial Times recently um, about that. The IMF and World Bank just a few weeks ago, put out a report pointing to the what's basically a toxic combination of debt burdens, climate change, and environmental degradation, which they, they are now starting to say is a systemic risk to the global economy. And I really hope that kind of analysis, which I'm sure is right, will mean that the leaders and the financial institutions will start to rethink the um, toolkit they have, that they give the IFIs to be able to respond to the most vulnerable countries. That was the thrust of the argument Masood and I were making in the FT. I'm sure there are lots of other opportunities and there's a lot of experimentation and there are, there's lots of other innovation and pilots out there. Some of them will work, some of them won't. It's really important that they're evaluated in a professional um, analytical way but then it's important that um, the good innovations are um, scaled up and replicated. We're clearly a long way behind the curve in dealing with this problem. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity for researchers and policymakers to contribute ideas and I do hope and I'm, I'm optimistic to a degree that policymakers will be a bit more attentive in the wake of um, the strong focus this year in the COP and elsewhere on climate change to good ideas. So it's a good moment um, for people like you to be working on this and um, because I think there's a good chance that your good ideas can be taken up. So Sorcha, thank you. Um, thank you everybody for listening and looking forward to hearing from Fonte and then everyone else's comments. 
Thanks, and yeah, certainly lots of good ideas um, from ODI on this on this topic. But I'm going to turn now to you, Fonte. Um, I know you've been looking a lot at this issue of overlapping risks and and what Mark was talking about in terms of the relative lack of focus and financing in conflict situations. You've been doing a lot of work through ISS, looking at how climate variability is exacerbating resource-based conflict and violent extremism, particularly in the Lake Chad Basin. So over to you in terms of your response to what you've just heard from Mark. What resonated with you? What's missing? And what do you think is specifically required in some of the contexts you're focusing in on? Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening um, to everyone who's joining us today. Um, I would like to first of all seize this opportunity to thank Sorcha and the team at the ODI, as well as Mark and the team at OCHA, um, for inviting the ISS to partake in this conversation, um, and um, which is coming in towards the end of Mark's distinguished ten tenure at the helm of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Um, being the only non-humanitarian on the panel for this conversation, I hope you would indulge my largely concordant notes um, with Mark's presentation. And I particularly enjoyed um, the silver lining, which came up towards the end of the presentation with a number of options moving forward. Options which are really actionable and which speak to the real issues um, regarding the complex emergencies that humanitarian responses are called to address. Um, the position from which I enter this conversation is geographically from the global south and from Africa in particular, where the Institute for Security Studies um, for the past 30 years has basically been working to sustain Africa's promise for peace and prosperity through adaptation and resilience. Um, and we have been doing this as well through policy research, training, capacity building, and participation in such policy platforms as the one organized today. Now, two thirds of the countries that Mark listed um, are currently as currently having humanitarian response plans um, are equally um, areas where we currently have a number of um, projects, ongoing research, and other um, and. For ISS, um, climate change and human security are twin priorities as well. In response to Mark and to you, Sorcha, I would obviously disproportionately draw on our work in the Sahel and the Lake Chad Basin, which includes three of the countries which Mark listed as most vulnerable to effects of climate change. This includes Chad, Mali, and Niger. Um, in addition to the climate risks um, that um, these countries face, Chad Ma and Mali have recently experienced some constitutional changes of government as well within the last year. And it's something which we cannot um, avoid in looking at how exactly responses are shaped. And all three countries are also facing the complex issues which Mark spoke to, challenges relating to local conflict, violent extremism, terrorism, which we cannot necessarily divorce in terms of their causes and evolutions from the impacts of climate change as well and which have created daunting and protracted humanitarian emergencies. I mean, if you take the crisis in the Lake Chad Basin, for example, um, Boko Haram has been at it for over a decade now and um, has basically shaped the way humanitarian interventions are taking place as well, both at the government level and the non-governmental level. 
Now, if you thought that things were looking bad <laughs> as of now, um, towards the end of the century, the predictions are even more dire. Um, a large portion, as large portions of the Sahel and West Africa are likely to be unsuited for human habitation in the event that greenhouse gas emissions continue unmitigated, thereby warming the planet by three, approximately 3.4 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. And this is according to the United Nations Environmental Program. We are looking here at a projected population of approximately 883 million individuals for West Africa alone facing these challenges and 33% of that population by 2050 would be under the age of 15 years old. Um, while we continue to document the implications of climate change and humanitarian emergencies, there is a lot like Mark noted that we know already. However, um, variable and unpredictable climate patterns are both threat and fragility multipliers in these spaces. So I'd like to point to three um, interconnected issues, um, which I think need to be taken seriously as well. The first is geographical in nature. And when we speak of the complexity of the threat and climate induced humanitarian emergencies are often not circumscribed within the borders of states. So um, looking at Mark's presentation, he referred to states quite a bit and it will be interesting to see exactly how we adapt humanitarian interventions so the complexities that take place across border spaces and on a regional scale um, so that we avoid the trappings of statist approaches um, to humanitarian intervention. Um, the second issue um, is one of the governance imperative. Um, climate, how do we effectively address climate fragility in context of governance unpredictability and tenuous social contracts between states and societies? Um, we know that social cohesion and trust are key, and Mark rightfully notes uh, the necessity for political leaders um, to be under no illusion that humanitarian systems will be there to pick up the pieces of their climate inaction. There is the need for climate uh, to address climate inaction, but there is also the need to work on social relations to build the bonds that um, create synergies between states and societies to effectively respond to those challenges. And the third um, imperative is one of political economy. Um, we all know um, that Africa faces disproportionately faces the impact of climate change um, while um, not contributing that much to the industrial and carbon footprints that creates the problem itself. And Mark listed some of the um, potential interventions through insurance schemes, through the availability of loans and aids that foster resilience. However, um, we need to be very prudent about how we interpret um, the impact of climate change and humanitarian intervention and development as well. Um, secondly, um, we need to address the growing inequalities that we are seeing and that Mark mentioned between the need and the supply or, or, of aid um, to meet this um, need that has been articulated. Um, the world has never found itself um, in more capital growth and wealth. So it's a little surprising that um, the calls for humanitarian funding are not meeting the kinds of response um, that would meet the challenge of the times. Um, and Africa, of course, needs also to develop, to deliver on the promise of peace and prosperity. 
And the big question here is how does Africa ensure its development while at the same time not falling into the trap of exacerbating the climate insecurities that we are facing at the moment? It's a big question that we would have to look at. We cannot forget the fact as well, um, and I didn't hear much about this, that women are disproportionately affected by the impact of climate change. Um, we cannot proceed with policies that would look at the field, the gender field as even, but, though, but beyond conflict sensitivity, I think there would be need to be um, quite some gender sensitivity inscribed into these humanitarian responses as well and essentially um, to build bridges from emergency interventions towards development interventions. Because it's one thing to strengthen the resilience um, of communities, it's another thing to provide them a, an opportunity and to support their developmental aspirations. Um, in terms of policy action, um, Mark spoke to most of them. Um, this action would need to be collective. And I'm not looking at collective from the level of a concert of states, but um, the confluence of political and business leadership, including social and religious leadership across the world to actually address this issue. Um, because we need to broaden the spectrum of the leaders we um, engage with to address um, this climate um, change issue. And secondly, um, in terms of collective action, I think um, the spectrum would also, in terms of multidisciplinary action, would have to bring in the political scientists together with the ecologists and uh, the development experts and others um, to be able to address this climate issue in ways that are imbricated and um, look at disentangling um, the many complexities that climate change actually exacerbates. Of course, Mark spoke about um, issues of uh, adaptability um, and uh, prevention as well. The prevention agenda is key um, to be able to effectively address um, the climate change question. And um, that uh, prevention agenda should um, be driven not only by states as well. Of course, I might be preaching to the choir or advocating for civil society organizations, but it definitely, there definitely is an imperative there to include um, social actors as well in the climate prevention agenda. And finally, there is the question of reparations and the repatriation agenda. It's not just about reversing um, the negative impacts of climate change and preventing its further degra degradation. It's also about looking at elements of social justice um, with, um, with when, when we see communities most vulnerable, not necessarily being those who created the problem in itself. And also the investment in these communities in a preventive manner should be able to bolster them, not just enhance their resilience, but um, drive innovation and innovative responses to the climate question. Um, Mark speaks to the imperative of now. Um, that imperative could not have come much clearer um, as articulated by the Secretary General of the United Nations himself. So the, all of these actors, this collection of actors need to act decisively um, to be able to not only reverse um, the current trends, but to also build a sustainable future. Thank you very much, Sochi. Thanks, Fonte. Whole raft of, of issues there. And Mark, maybe to come back to you on a few of them, but you can pick up the ones that you found uh, particularly that resonated. But but I guess for me, this issue of, of reparations, and I, I guess as humanitarians, we're seeing 
the profound impact that climate variability has in some of the most vulnerable contexts and how much do you think we have a responsibility as humanitarians to go beyond i guess anticipating and 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 helping prevent and, and manage this towards a more right-based agenda around climate justice. So that's kind of, I guess, one issue. Then the other issue around the trans-border complexities, and that's just one of complex, the complexities, the issues of, of risk multipliers and threats. And how well do you think the humanitarian system is geared up to deal with these multiplying risks and I, I think we look at COVID and, and really question about our ability to to um you know engage cooperatively and collectively with multiple risks around at the same time. And then lastly what really resonated with me is this issue of, of governance and fragility. Um, and we know that it's not the international humanitarian system that's going to be the silver bullet for um really engaging in this. It must be national systems, um, even in fragile situations. And so I guess, how do you see humanitarian actors working in support of um, and strengthening national capacities, whether it's on anticipatory action or on, um, on adaptation activities, particularly in fragile and conflict settings? So there were some of the themes that I, I pulled out in particular, but there may be others, Mark, that you that you want to respond to. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Fonte. That I thought really, really interesting set of comments. And so let me let me respond on a couple of points, um, Sorcha. I the thing about the humanitarian system is our job is to deal with the symptoms, not to be the the sort of part of systems which tackle the underlying causes. I do think we have a role to um, flag as energetically as we can the need for causes to be addressed more effectively. I mean, the reason there's been this explosion in humanitarian need um, over the last, uh, particularly the last 10 years or so, um, is, I mean, it's partly because the world is bigger, there's more people in the world, and most of the additional people are in very vulnerable places. It's partly because we do a better job in providing more comprehensive and higher class support than we did when I was first doing this work sort of 35 years ago. But it's mostly, it's mostly because the causes of crises, conflict, climate change, and now COVID, have been multiplying and and there hasn't been enough focus on dealing with those causes. Dealing with the causes is not the job of the humanitarian system, but I think we have an important role to, you know, flag to the people whose job it is, look, don't expect things to get any better if all you're dealing with is the symptoms. And um, I was, you know, I very much agree with the things Fonte said about the, um, the Sahel in that context. I, I actually, did a, a very interesting event at Sciences Po in Paris late last year on the Sahel. And that was one of the main things we talked about. Um, the, um, on the, the issue of the role of states, um, clearly, wherever possible, states should be a positive player. 
and wherever that wherever it is possible certainly in the, the united nations we want above all to work closely with states the most the thorniest humanitarian challenges we face though are in relation to those 60 million people about one person in 100 on the planet who live somewhere where the the, the relevant authorities are not a state they're either, you know, some extremist group like Boko Haram or ISIL, or a criminal enterprise, like, uh, for example, in in and around parts of Colombia, um, with the drug warlords being in control of large swathes of territory, or often some other non-state armed group. Now, sometimes um, it's possible to engage effectively, even with, with groups of that sort. Um, sometimes, as is, as is the case with Boko Haram or ISIL, it's extremely difficult to engage because their nihilistic ideologies include a belief that attacking humanitarian workers is an appropriate thing to do. Um, so, you know, one thing the humanitarian system needs to get continue to get better at and aspire to deal with is the fate of people living in places where where there's not a state who is exit which is exercising control um you know there's also the issue which i've had to talk about a lot in my job where states are part of the problem and that's obviously been the case when it comes to northwestern syria um over the last really the last three years when the government of Syria and its allies have been essentially attacking civilians and civilian um, infrastructure and institutions as part of a wider, um, you know, wider agenda and where the only means of providing assistance to those people is across the border from Turkey because it hasn't been possible to get assistance from Damascus across the line. Um, so wherever possible to give you the one sentence answer to the question on that wherever possible it will be very good to be able to work with states but it's not always possible excellent thank you um we have a whole set of questions coming in from from the audience one of them um touches on the point that you made fonte around not just inequalities in terms of action um, in terms of geography, but also within countries that there are differing impacts on different people, whether it's it's women and children, uh, whether it's people with disabilities, whether it's politically marginalized group. Um, and Mark, Mark, you mentioned that we're behind the curve on this generally, but specifically in terms of understanding its impacts and being able to work better to, to kind of manage the different impacts on, on different people. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. So that's one set of questions. Um, and you raised it, Fonte, but I'd be interested to hear what you think could be done better in terms of addressing and responding to it. And then there's lots of work, lots of questions about um, the fact, you know, what do we do in situations where adaptation and early warning doesn't work? Um, so, you know, 
we're pushing the humanitarian system to work better, to understand better the risks, to anticipate the risks, um, to prepare earlier um, through early warning, through the forecasting you mentioned. But what, do, what does the humanitarian system do and how do we respond better when, when this fails? Either we didn't predict correctly or, or we just didn't pr predict. And how well is the humanitarian system geared up for the scale of crisis that we're likely to see? Um, so that's another question, and I'll give you a third one, and then you can um, decide um, how you'll answer them. Then um, there's a third question about how do we need to revisit our approaches to anticipatory action um, for more of the unusual or black swan events, like the desert lo locust outbreak in Kenya. Um, so our, our approach to financing and forecasting fit for purpose for different forms of, of threats that perhaps um, are as yet not very well known and appreciated. And how do we deal with that? Um, so maybe Fonte, back to you first in terms of um, this issue of, of inequalities that you, you picked up um, and your thoughts in terms of, of what more could be done in relation to that. Well, let me um, thanks again, Sorcha, for those questions. Um, in terms of inequalities, I'd rather look at it in terms of vertical and horizontal variability, um, because there are differences in the way you look at um, humanitarian events um, across different geographical spaces, whether they are rural or urban, whether they are close in proximate to borders or not um, centers or whether they are flash events or a complex set of events which are also um, compounded by the proliferation of small arms and light weapons and the presence of gangs. Um, that, that, that's one level. And the second level of it as well is um, the individual um, uh, variability as well um, in terms of um, differences between um, genders um, in dealing with this, differences between social groups in actually the way they are affected by um, climate variability and um, the ways in which they respond to these as well. And I think that these different degrees of variability require a strengthening of um, social service delivery patterns. And I think in the Lake Chad Basin um, region, for example, we have seen a greater investment um, by the different states um, in establishing ministries for humanitarian affairs, uh, first of all, as a first stop shop to um, not just um, respond uh, in a preventive manner, um, but to also promote adaptability. And these are not ministries which um, focus on the issues relating to small arms and light weapons and conflict related, related issues in, in general. Um, but there are issues which uh, there are countries which look at questions related, there are ministries which look at questions relating to flooding, um, low cost invasions, and so on and so forth. Having that institutional framework to be able to address these issues from a national perspective is a first step. And Niger established its ministry, for example, in 2016. Nigeria um, established its own ministry for humanitarian affairs as well in 2019. And these different ministries have actually contributed to bolstering the action um, responses to this. The second is um, a lot of thought and innovation is driven by communities which are subject um, to climate variability. 
Um, it, it doesn't just drive um, farmer herder conflicts in the Sahel and Lake Chad Basin, but it also drives innovation, innovative ways in circumventing conflicts and actually responding to them, at least from the level of the community. And so communities have um, developed mechanisms through which they can actually demand or um, identify what their own needs are to be able to strengthen their resilience. However, um, the crisis um, tend to um, disproportionately affect them in ways that um, often um, they're not necessarily well outfitted to deal with the shocks. So that, that, that would be the, first, the, the response to the first question. And, um, the, and relating to that is the fact that context really matters. Um, uh, it, it would be different if you had a landslide, for example, like we saw in Sierra Leone in 2019, and the ways in which the, the response is built up to, to address that, then it would be um, addressing, say, um, a problem, uh, a climate-related issue in Segu or Mopti in Mali, which is um, on the peripheries of the state and not necessarily at the center of the political agenda as well. Add to this the question of political will um, to effectively address these issues. There is um, variable political will between countries and within countries as well. And it's extremely challenging to build, to master and build and maintain the political will to effectively address these issues in a way, way in ways that link up humanitarian interventions to um, uh, development interventions. And as on a final note, um, Mark uh, might have mentioned this in passing or alluded to this. It's the issue of the triple nexus as well, which is um, an elephant in the room when you're looking at responding to humanitarian emergencies in context where um, peace building, ongoing security interventions and humanitarian and development interventions are trying to drive stabilization. Um, those um, operationalizing the triple nexus continues to pose a challenge um, across the continent in spaces where um, attempts have been made to do that. Um, not just because of a matter of principles, um, humanitarian principles, but also um, because of the uh, nature of the actors who are involved um, in all the three axes of this humanitarian security and peace building interventions. Thank you. Georgia, maybe I could just make a comment on the locust issue which you talked about because I think it's actually a really good example of the application of the principles of anticipatory action. Um, you know early last year late 2019 when it became clear there was a locust problem um, FAO and the and my office actually through the Central Emergency Response Fund started to organize a response before the effects of the locusts had killed a single person. And the, res the, the, the result of that was that, um, you know, the impact of locusts in the Horn of Africa, the response was most prominent in um, Ethiopia, parts of Somalia and parts of Kenya. What that meant was the impact was significantly reduced. And there was actually quite good early warning, in my opinion, and planning for, um, you know, parts of Africa in the Sahelian Belt west of west of uh, the horn as well, and some readiness to intervene, which in the end turned out not to be necessary on a very large scale because there, because there was a, you know, the problem didn't emerge in the way that there was some concern it, it might have done. A similar, you know, similarly the response was, was actually not bad in other places affected by the locusts, including parts of West Asia um, and other 
cultures further south in um, Africa. But it's a really good example of how if you anticipate and then act rather than wait and react, you get a cheaper, more humane response. And because we have, you know, much better data now, it's easier to do that than it was um, in the past. You, you only need three things for anticipatory action. You need information on what's about to happen. You need really fast, which means pre-agreed, pre-agreed financing. And thirdly, you need a, a plan which you're ready to execute. In other words, you need to have thought about the problem and how you're going to respond to it and who's going to do what in advance. And if you've got those three things, um, you can organize a much better response. I think this really is one of the most promising areas of activity in the humanitarian space. And it helps deal with our biggest problem, which is the needs are mushroomed and the money's not keeping pace. Excellent. And I think you've answered also one of the other questions that's come in um, in terms of, you know, where is the innovation? Where are the examples um, that we can draw on in terms of scaling up? Um, three more questions that um, maybe you can look at from different angles. One um, picks up on the point, Fonte, you've just made around the, the triple nexus. And surely this is the agenda that needs to activate um, the different parts of the international system to work better together and to coordinate better. But how could we actually, how could we actually do that in practice? Um, then a second question around um, engaging with national systems um, and national civil society, and how do we make sure in the in the in the push to to scale up uh, the humanitarian system that we're not overshadowing the the more difficult and harder work that needs to happen at a, at a national level. And then a third question, I guess, I guess I read into them lots of um, concern about financing. Um, so one, how can we use the upcoming COP to really push the agenda on loss and damage um, and to make sure that there is a stronger focus on those countries that are most affected. A second one, um, concern that you know, the cuts in the UK are just a forewarning of further cuts um, that are likely due to a global recession. And given the scale of this problem, how can we actually um, finance it more effectively? Um, so there, there are kind of two questions around, around, I guess, the system. And then the last one, a little bit more, I guess, conceptual, um, around the fact that there are lots of unhelpful narratives in relation to the climate, particularly um, in terms of climate refugees and a very securitized agenda. And how do we, on the one hand, kind of engage with the severity of this crisis, but not play into some of these politicized agendas that don't really bear out um, in terms of the reality on the ground that people are affected, but actually environmental change often makes mobility less possible rather than more possible. Um, and how do we manage mobility and immobility? So the kind of the issue of the securitization of the agenda, but also how do we manage the, the realities on the ground? So you can pick and choose from those questions. 
Right, shall I start? Um, I'm sure I, so, Fonte, my um, my normal principle when I um, am in the lucky position of sharing the response to questions with a colleague like you is I try to go first and I try to take the easy questions. And then I will hand over to you. So let me just respond on a couple of <laughs> on a couple of points. That's not as I'm ready to answer the hard questions as well. I'm just um, adding some levity to the discussion. But the um, let me just let, let me just make one point about the the issue of aid cuts. I'm not going to repeat quite a lot of what I've said publicly in respect to the UK. But um, what I would say is actually what I'm seeing from from other places is a recognition that um, sustaining finance for humanitarian response and indeed for for other things is one of the learning points that's come out of the pandemic and actually um, again the Biden administration um, are, have, are really making really quite significant impact already in humanitarian um, financing and in their wider engagement on international issues and I'm, I am hopeful that that will be sustained and built on. It's also the case that other G7 countries, for example, Germany, um, France, to a lesser degree, Canada, are increasing their financing and their support in these areas. So um, I think that the, the overall picture is one of recognition in lots of places that many of the problems rich countries have, in fact, have their origin in other places. And the best way to deal with them is to respond where problems start rather than um, kid yourself erroneously that you can protect yourself by building walls or borders or whatever you think. Um, the, I, I very much agree that there is a real imperative to join up activity between humanitarian agencies and development agencies and peace building organizations and in fact when I when I started in this job in um, 2017, that was one of the things I was really enthused by and keen to contribute to. And, and I've enjoyed a lot of the collaboration I've had with colleagues across the UN system on that um, and traveled with Akim Steiner, the head of the UN Development Programme, and I've been to lots of places together. I've traveled with um, my colleague, um, Oscar, um, who is the head of the Peace Building Support Office at the UN. We went to Somalia and Ethiopia together. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, um, scope to join up. It, unfortunately, the current situation is that the humanitarian system is basically overwhelmed with coping simply with the symptoms of all the problems we've got. So it's been hard to open up the space and give people the um, time and opportunity to pursue that join up agenda as energetically as would have been desirable. At the end of the day, the first thing the humanitarian agencies have to do is save lives. And um, that's getting harder and harder and it's becoming overwhelming in people's um, focus. We need to try to get to a point where there's a bit more headspace and bandwidth and resource to do some of these other things as well. Excellent. Fonte, I'll just give you a couple of minutes, if that's okay, because I just want to turn back to Mark before we close, just for some final remarks. So 
you've had a little bit of time to ponder those difficult questions. Uh, so which one, which one will you pick up? Well, I mean, I would um, express a preference to address the question of the triple nexus, um, because you have this complex humanitarian, in, in complex interventions taking place in spaces with complex challenges, and um, which sees a combination um, of humanitarian, peace building, security interventions as well. Um, but the issue is a lot of these interventions are taking place within a within context where the humanitarian space space is also shrinking because of, of a number of factors. The first one is um, military responses to the presence of um, non-state armed groups. Um, the second is the limiting of um, the use of um, legal frameworks, which basically limits the access of humanitarian groups to specific groups of actors. Um, the third is um, the conflation of roles between um, national armies, for example, and humanitarian, um, national humanitarian actors. And um, the fourth issue um, is basically the length and the duration of humanitarian interventions within these spaces. So um, the admixture of these factors makes it really difficult to have effectively responses to these issues and add to that um, the fact that the presence of certain hum um, humanitarian displaced groups actually alters um, the political landscape within some rural spaces within which um, displaced populations find themselves. Um, and these are complex um, dynamics which require um, not just innovative thinking, um, but the capacity to actually tap into local communities' capacities as well, as well as non-governmental organizations and community-based organizations, and the victims of these um, of, of, of these um, humanitarian um, emergencies. And I think that the complexity is so huge um, that the operationalization of the triple nexus is going to be a work in progress um, for at least the next decade until we can um, get all of the blocks of the puzzle solidly working with administrative structures by state which can perform their functions which can provide um, protection for civilians and civilian populations that are able to provide basic registration processes to individuals that actually give them humanity um, in situations where their humanity has been stripped from themselves, we would not be able to address the issues of the tribal nexus effectively. Thank you. Absolutely, and there's a huge set of issues there that I can think we could talk at length about, and I'm sure um, if we're realistic, we'll be working on the nexus for a long time, more than just a decade. A decade would probably be um, ambitious, but we're nearly um, at time. But before we, we finish up, Mark, I, I really just wanted to ask you some of your own personal reflections on how well you think kind of over the time of your tenure, <coughs> we've moved forward on this agenda. Um, and what were maybe some of the frustrations that you've you've encountered in in your role and some specific questions in, you know in this role people always come to you and they've highlighted you know whether the isc principles should be more focused on this agenda whether we should have a charter for climate and environment amongst the humanitarian system you know what specifically OCHA's role should be in relation to climate and do we need a stronger lead on that 
So I'm just wondering, yeah, as you reflect over your, your last few years um, in terms of the positives, but also the frustrations, um, you know, what more personal reflections would you, you lend us? Well, I mean, the, one of the reasons I think it's good to have, be doing this event on climate change today is it's it must be obvious to everybody um, the world is not doing at all well in dealing with the rate of climate change or the consequences of climate change. Um, and, um, you, you know, unless that changes, no one should expect anything other than a continued mushrooming of humanitarian crises and displacement and misery and so on. More broadly, um, you know, um, the global humanitarian system is a massive public good. Every year, um, you know, we reach more than 100 million people. We certainly save millions of lives, reduce a lot of suffering. For all that things are difficult and deteriorating at the moment, they'd be a lot worse without what humanitarian agencies do. And it's been, you know, very humbling for me to, as I've traveled to more than 50 countries in this job and um, met thousands of aid workers just to see the courage and commitment and determination um, of colleagues. I do think that, you know, one way to improve the humanitarian system is to create incentives and put in place processes to cause everybody to have to listen much more and respond much more directly to what the people affected by crises say what they want. And I, you, you all know, Sorcha, that I've made proposals about how we could do that. I do think that's, I think it would be very good if, if, if you know, ways to ensure that the voice of people affected is acted on much more effectively and systematically were found. It doesn't have to be through the proposal I've made. I happen to think that's a good idea, but um, there are other ways of doing the same thing. But at a time when, um, you know, needs are growing and the system's overwhelmed and there's a huge pressure on resources, one of the ways in which you can improve is just make sure you're doing more of the things people say are the most important things to do. And at the moment, we're not doing as well as we um, should have done on that. But you know, really, the, if people remember one thing from this answer, it should be that the humanitarian system is a good thing and it does a lot of good and it needs more support. Without it, the world will be much worse. Okay, I'm afraid we have to leave it there, but thank you. Um, and um, yeah, you're coming to the end of your tenure, so we wish you well over the next few months. I think we're all waiting with anticipation for the upcoming announcement in terms of, of your successor. But it's been a really interesting and, and thought-provoking discussion. I want to thank also our audience for your fantastic questions. Please do continue the conversation online and through Twitter. Um, and we'll have a recording on the ODI event page in a, in a few days' time. So do please share with your networks. But thank you once again, Mark uh, and Fonte, for really thoughtful, very insightful, and in sometimes inspiring um, examples of, of what's happening. Um, and thank you, thank you all. Bye-bye. <laughs>